Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. My name is Renee Manderville, and I'm the Project Manager at the Indian Ocean World Center, or IOWC, at McGill University. I am joined by Philip Gooding and Archisman Chowdhury, two postdoctoral fellows at the IOWC. Hi, Renee. Thank you for having me here again. Hello, and thank you for having me as well. Our guest today is Professor Brian Tomaszewski, an Associate Professor of Geographic Information Science and Technology at the Rochester Institute of Technology in New York. His research relies on intersectionalities of sciences and humanities, covering subjects such as information science and technology, geographic visualization, spatial thinking management, and refugee affairs. His prominent work on geographic information systems, or GIS, a topic which will be elaborated throughout the remainder of this podcast, has recently been used for his project on refugee GIS, or REFUGIS, in affiliation with the United Nations Refugee Agency. This project maps the journey of displaced peoples and provides navigatory and community building solutions for refugees in search of new homes and NGOs and government agencies attempting to facilitate this process. More information on GIS can be found in his recent publication, How Map Making Brings Communities Closer Together, an article that can be found in one of the links below this podcast. Another link provided in the podcast description is Professor Tomaszewski's recent publication on serious geogames for disaster resilience and spatial thinking, research which he has been conducting through funding by the U.S. National Science Foundation. While today we will be largely discussing information present in his first edition of his book, Geographic Information Systems for Disaster Management, the second edition of his book is set to be released in the fall of 2020. I'm also going to just mention to our listeners that because Professor Tomaszewski's research on GIS incorporates maps and other mediums of visual data, our audience can also found a video recording of this podcast on our Appraising Risk website. Brian, it's an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much for agreeing to provide us with some valuable insight regarding GIS in our podcast this morning. Thanks, everyone. I'm honored to be here. So first of all, um, do you mind just introducing Geographic Information Systems, or GIS, to our audience? What are they? How is this data compiled? And what is the intention of collecting this multifaceted form of data with respect to disaster management? Sure. So um, when I'm at parties and I, you know, I tell people what I do, um, the very, very lightning fast explanation is you know, I do maps in computers. And so to try to relate that to things people can understand, um, it's not, you know, academically, it's not necessarily a complete match, but like things like Google Maps, right? We all have, we all have a smartphone nearby. Um, I often tell my students, you know, raise your hands if you use Google Maps at least once a day. Even the three of you, do you think you use Google Maps at least once a day? Probably, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, even when you live somewhere, you're always looking things up. So, you know, that's that's the quick way to explain it digital mapping digital data however the ideas behind um gis predate computers so if you break the word down geographic information system so that system is a whole comprised of individual parts 
So we often think of sometimes GIS just gets associated with the software. Excuse me. There's um there's a commercially available GIS software that I teach my students how to use. There's open source software. There's things like Google Maps that I've talked about. But that's just one part of it. Um, you also have the data, the data that's fed into that software. You have the um, the people that are using the software. You have the knowledge that goes behind how to use the software, how to work with the data, and so forth. And so from a from a GIS perspective, that's knowledge of cartography. And that's something, you know, how to, how to make maps um, certainly is one of the oldest things in human society. Um, I know that this, what you've told me, this podcast may be of interest to historians. You know, maps have existed in societies um, as early as, you know, cuneiform tablets in um, ancient Mesopotamia, um, ancient Egypt. There's vases that have uh, sort of spatial representation, graphical spatial representations are drawn on them and so forth. So... You know, that, that's kind of an overview of what the system is behind GIS and how it's used for disaster management. You're going to probably hear me many times in this podcast talk about the spatial aspect of disasters, right? Disasters are, are things that happen, you know, in places that affect people over time. Um, I'm going to use flooding a lot as an example because I think that's a really straightforward example. But you have to um, map out the location of water and then try to map out the hazard of that. Um, I know two of you are live in Montreal, and I think about the islands in Montreal. You know, it's built on an island. Now, um, for your podcast listeners, I live in upstate New York on Lake Ontario, and it's not really uh, germane to our podcast, but we have issues with the water levels of Lake Ontario, and they control the level of that lake because they don't want to flood Montreal. Right. So mapping that all out is really important. So when, say, the Ottawa River is at a really high stage, they have to block the water in Lake Ontario so the city of Montreal doesn't get flooded. And that's an inherently spatial thing that maps helped us to understand. And um, you might even consider it a, a graphical model of the world. I mean, that's basically what a map is. Um, it, it gives us some kind of a, a representation of the world around us that we can under, help us to understand understand things better. So that, is that I know is that a good answer for that question? Great answer! Wow. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, can you also provide us maybe with a visual example via Zoom screen share of how GIS disaster management is charted, um, how the map legends kind of relate to one another, or the map. Sure. Tell us a little bit about the map legends in general. Um, talk about accessibility and maybe some limitations that continue to exist within this form of GIS disaster management charting. Thanks for that question, Renee. Sure, I'd be happy to show you um, some examples of how GIS can relate to disaster management legends and limitations. So with that, let's dive right into it. Um, first off, um, if you don't mind a little shameless self-promotion, this is the cover of my new book that you mentioned. And a lot of these images are taken right out of the book. And I'll even use some of these images themselves. These are all pictures that I either created or took on my research other than this one in the middle. And I'll, go, I'll, I'll explain that in just a minute. So first off, a little conceptual ideas. Um, disaster management cycle. Um, this is a common way that the idea of disasters are represented. Um, they're often considered, I mean, there's, and there's variations on this, but the basic idea is that you sort of prepare for a disaster. You might um, stockpile medical supplies. 
you might um, do training on, you know, uh, first aid, and then something happens. Um, sometimes it's a fast event, like a flood. Sometimes it's a slower event, like a famine or whatever. But then you respond to it, right? And um, that can be like, you know, it could, it could go anywhere from calling the fire department to deal with an emergency to a major um, um, catastrophe like um, the Indian Ocean, like the, uh, the tsunami. I think it was in 2005. I think that's when the, the great 2004, 2004. Excuse me, at the end of 2004, there was a massive catastrophe that affected the whole Indian Ocean world and so forth. And so once you respond to that, you try to stabilize things, then you slowly or quickly start to recover. And um, an example in the U.S. I'll use is Hurricane um, Katrina. That happened in 2017, and we're still recovering from that. And this isn't necessarily, it's a cycle, and it's not necessarily linear, too. You could still be recovering from an event, and then another one happens. And these things can uh, kind of, you know, kind of overlap on top of each other. And then mitigation. This is the idea of trying to prevent things from happening in the first place, like the old saying, disaster by design. And I'm sort of an example of that. You know, I've chosen to live right on the shore of Lake Ontario. So I feel personally that if it floods, I've chosen to live right on the water, right? So a mitigation measure would be to like not live on the coast, right? And sometimes in, in the oceans, they actually pay people to, to move, to leave, to leave a coastal hazard zone. Um, in cities like New York City, there's been a lot of talk of how to build seawalls because of climate change. I'm sure in Montreal, there's all kinds of things they do to try to protect, to mitigate against flooding of the St. Lawrence River and so forth. And whether you as private citizens know about that or not, the city thinks about all that. And then the whole thing continues. So you've mitigated, you continually prepare and so forth. Now you'll see here, geographic information systems, this outer circle is relevant to every part of this of this model and in the book each of these topics get their own chapter um, in terms of the role of mapping and gis spatial data and I'll, I'll show you now some graphics to kind of illustrate this um, so let's first just look at some different kinds of disasters right this is a picture that i took in amman jordan um, a few years ago and this is a classic example of urban flooding right um, you don't think i mean if, you've, if you haven't traveled much in the middle east you don't necessarily think of flooding per se as being a real hazard because it's a very dry region. However, in the city of, Ma of Amman, especially in the wintertime, when it rains, it comes down hard and fast. And you also have the compounded problem of drainage systems are often clogged and the systems to deal with us are often backed up and it leads to flooding, right? So how can we, you know, just to start thinking about the role of GIS, how can maps be relevant to planning out drainage networks, how to respond to such an event and so forth. This is a picture I took in um, just south of Houston, Texas a few years ago. This is an example of disaster, maybe disaster recovery. Um, Hurricane Katrina came through um, and it actually was not necessarily storm surge, it was excessive amounts of rain. So what you're looking at in this picture is a house that's sort of destroyed and these people need to start recovering and ideally mitigating against future hazards. Uh, the, Obviously, clearly, the wall is falling down. Um, you have to really rebuild this house and so forth. This is an image from Hurricane Dorian that I took from, uh, it's called NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the United States. And we will often fly um, airplanes over disaster zones to collect imagery that is what's called geo-referenced. 
So when you get geo-referenced information, you can take this picture and put it into a GIS software, and the picture will know where it is in the real world in terms of latitude and longitude coordinates. So I know that this, on this left, this uh, building that has a, a tarp on it, where it's located in the real world. And from what you can see, um, the blue tarp um, is very commonly used. Um, when buildings have been destroyed, you put a blue tarp over as a quick sort of um, recovery thing just to put a cover on your house. It may not be obvious, but these are damaged trees. They're kind of a dark shade from trees. And maybe this was a little woods or something that all fell down. Um, you can see sort of the sand. You can see this building here on the left has the roof completely gone and the exposed interior and so forth. Um, and this is a good example of something like this, um, what they call, you know, with machine learning, where you could train a GIS to go through and basically identify parts of this image and how they're damaged. So one, the, a machine learning algorithm will be able to identify a road um, that's open, a, a, the blue of a blue tarp for a damaged building, brown for downed trees, and so forth. And um, I think that's, that's a very powerful sort of data science technique that can be used with imagery for um, disasters. Um, kind of, I wanted to steer this back to uh, the Indian Ocean. Um, last year, I was privileged enough. I spent some time in Kerala, which, if you're you know familiar with the Indian Ocean world, if not, it's located in southwest India. Um, and from what I learned about going there, it's one of the more economically advantaged states of India. Very tropical, very beautiful. And I visited a part of Kerala where they had been. Um, the, the land is very low level. And this is a woman in this picture is showing us how high the flood got to her house. And I don't really have a scale. I mean, for all you know, she could be like three meters high or something, um, making a joke. But like she was probably about a meter and a half, five feet tall. Mm -hmm. You know, but the, you, know, you can see the, that the water significantly um, you know, came and impacted her house. And I had a really fascinating day. There was a lot of displacement during the flood and so forth. So that's also something to think about. And yes, so that's also something to, th to think about. There is just natural disasters and they impact things. But something I've become more interested in, especially with mapping, is the idea of forced displacement and disasters. And um, this is a picture I took a few years ago in a refugee camp in Rwanda that has refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is a country that neighbors Rwanda, and, um, or DRC for short. DRC has had a, a long geopolitical history of civil wars. And um, as historians, if you're interested in East African history and you don't really know much about geopolitical context in East Africa, um, it goes back to the Rwandan genocides and, and so forth. And those things of the past are very much the context for refugee displacement situations nowadays. But what's interesting in this picture is the slope, because Rwanda just in general physically is a, is a very hilly country. Um, so uh, natural disasters are, are landslides, flooding, and so forth are an issue here. And now um, I'll talk about in just a moment. Now we've got coronavirus. We have COVID. Um, think about COVID in these very close quarters. We were talking offline about our social distancing issues in an urban environment. Think about it in a refugee forced displacement situation where you can't go anywhere. You can't, you're already displaced, you know. Um, and so groups like UNHCR, they've been working hard at really keeping coronavirus out of the camps and so forth because um, it's, 
to use the metaphor of a fire, I mean, it's like dry wood waiting for a match to just fall in there because if coronavirus gets in a place like this, um, I think that'd be a very, uh, very, uh, I don't even want to think about it really. And this is just one relatively small refugee camp. Um, when you think about forced displacement around the world, um, either long-term like a refugee or in the Indian Ocean world, um, I only really know a little bit about India but when, when monsoon season comes, flooding in Kerala, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are being displaced, even if temporarily. Um, and from historians, you know, that, that I think that's an interesting research topic is to look back at the history of large scale disasters, even, you know, again, I don't know the history, but, you know, what happened before 2004 and, and back, how did they respond and cope and, and so forth? Okay. So those are just some pictures of examples. Um, let's look at maps now. So how do you graphically represent these things in maps? Um, this is from chapter one of the book. I like to use it. You know, disaster mapping is not anything new. Um, this is from Hurricane Camille in 1969, and it shows the trajectory of the hurricane as it's approaching. Um, the map starts out showing the line by Cuba and they're doing sort of a space-time projection, August 14th to August 22nd, 1969. And the hurricane is starting out, you know, as they usually do out in the Caribbean. And they're, you know, where they're anticipating making um, landfall, how it's changing from a top tropical depression to a tropical storm to an outright hurricane and so forth. Now, mapping-wise, you know, um, this is cartography. You have different symbols and shapes to show the trajectory of the hurricane, timestamps, and so forth. So um, if, you know, it's also got things Lambert conformal conic projection. Most people don't really probably care about what that is. But if you get serious about GIS, that's there's proper ways of using map projections to show data at different scales and so forth. If we fast forward to modern times, this is basically the same way they do it nowadays. Um, this is from a computer based, <coughs> excuse me, um, a computer based map that generates um, Hurricane introductions. This is Hurricane Maria from 2017. Um, it's got a little bit more um, things going on, but it's it's essentially the same as this map in terms of the overall purpose. It just has different ways it's presenting it. Maybe it looks graphically looks nicer, and so forth. It uses colors and so forth. But um, one of your questions, Renee, was about the legends and so forth. Um, you know, a map like this, though, for some people, could be perhaps complicated to read and interpret, especially the legend. So you have to know, you know, day one and three is sort of the solid symbol. Day four and five is shown with sort of speckled dots. Um, and that's, that's uncertainty. You know, that's a, that's a research topic in cartography. How do you represent uncertainty? We don't know where the hurricane's gonna be in four to five days. So that's why we have, the map shows a really wide span with kind of dots just for, to, to communicate uncertainty. Um, hopefully you're not colorblind that you can read the different colors, hurricane, um, colorblind for blue and, and so forth. Um, there's a lot crammed in here, but there's a lot going on. I mean, if you, you know, if you study, if you go and get a PhD in cartography, geography, you really learn to break down maps and they actually are very complex communication devices because people could misinterpret this and so forth. And I'll show examples of one of your questions also, Renee, is about limitations of maps, and I'll talk about that more in just a moment. Um, this is a sort of an official map from the United States. This is a flood advisory map. Um, this is a very complicated map showing where floods potentially can happen at different timescales. Um, in this case, it's around New York City. 
and so forth. And um, these are regulatory. People base like housing prices and insurance off of official maps. So a takeaway point from this whole podcast, if you've never thought about it, the discourse of maps, the power of maps, right? If an official government document says your where you live is within a uh, flood zone, that can impact your insurance, your cost of living, and so forth. Um, we can also do zoning about that. You could potentially lose your house because of maps like this. And um, that's a big issue in urban, I mean, not just natural disasters, but urban planning and so forth, the spatial discourse of maps and so forth. Um, and so think about that, especially if you live in a city, um, zoning, planning, neighborhood redevelopment, maps drive the whole entire process and they have historically. Okay, next up we have a map. Um, this is again back to those, we saw the picture of that refugee camp previously. Now this is what it looks like sort of in terms of the bigger situation on a map. This is a map I created for my book using what's called hotspot mapping. And these are statistically significant areas where conflict events have happened in the DRC. So you can see there's a really big cluster of red points right on the border of Rwanda. And that's what's creating refugees going into Rwanda. And that's the power of maps to look at problems at different scales and to understand bigger regional processes and so forth. Um, this is a map, again, I wanted to try to put as much Indian Ocean kind of things in it. This is a collage of images and maps from my book um, about Kerala. And so this is a picture, I don't remember where I got it, but this is what the Kerala flooding looked like. And it kind of ties back into that picture I showed of the woman with her hand. I'm showing how high the water got. That's almost the whole entire first floor of a building being flooded. Um, Kerala, was they were excellent from what I read in their response. They set up a website, and you're seeing more and more of these things of the use of, right there you can see maps as its own sort of, sort of pillar of the rescue between um, requests for help, relief, relief camps, how to give money, contribute, volunteering. Maps are right there, right at the forefront. So... You really can't ignore maps anymore in disaster management. You do that at your own risk, at your own creating your own hazard and vulnerability. And I think of interest to this group, understanding the historical context by, behind disasters is equally as important. Um, if I'm remembering the um, Kerala correctly, they there was a water um, a water reservoir that they actually opened because it was going to burst. And historically, they hadn't opened they hadn't opened the water reservoir up since like 1920, so, but there was so much water building up in it they had to let some of the water out as a flood mitigation measure, and it did cause some people to be flooded, but it was worse than the bigger the bigger issue that would have happened if the whole thing and the whole thing had failed. And so I think those kind of things, looking back at past disasters, how they were dealt with, understanding the historical context, especially as we head into climate change, more intense events head into it we're in it already um, and so forth is important um, this was from something called hot the the humanitarian open street map team and this is the idea now of crowdsourcing where people were assigned they basically took Kerala put a grid over it I don't I don't know exactly how much each grid uh, area wise and they were people were assigned to look at satellite imagery and do tracing of damage and this has been a modern technique now of how to gather data sort of free and open source that it can be shared back and also in a more timely manner. 
And just to throw another idea out there, this could be an interesting thing for historic maps. If you start to find historic maps, get them digitized and geo-referenced. So take a paper map, scan it in, find reference points, put it in GIS. So, so a map like this could be valuable for crowdsourcing. Historical maps could also be crowdsourced, digitized, and that's a big effort of historical GIS which I think is part of this bigger Indian Ocean world thing will be a, a major outcome of this project, getting a, a, a database of historical disaster events that are geo-referenced. I think that'll be a major contribution. Um, here's another sort of official map. Um, this is by what's called the Humanitarian Information Unit, which is part of the US State Department. They're constantly making maps of humanitarian situations. Um, this is one from my book. Again, I just grabbed it. This is looking at um, refugee situations in Africa and so forth. Um, so again, this is more of a regional level map. Um, you asked me too about legends and reading maps. Um, I think this is a, an, uh, an important topic. Um, it's very easy to lie, not necessarily lie with maps maybe, but like how to manipulate information. So these two maps are showing the same data, the same raw observations or facts. The population of people aged 65 to 69 by U.S. county. It's the same data set, but in the top map, I've used what's called equal interval as a way to put the data into bins, right? So if your value is between 2 and 646,059 uh, 646, people, these are just raw counts, that's how that's where you'll get you'll get added to a bin notice in the map how all of the counties are basically white or they're in that first legend class and there's only one on the bottom sort of left in um, i'm guessing that's probably san diego um it really shows this is a good for showing your outliers right so as opposed to quantiles which is a different just method for classifying your data where you kind of rank it and break it into groups it's a whole different kind of map a whole different presentation. Again, the same exact data set, but you know, being able to have sort of a critical eye towards maps and their legends, especially when you're doing quantitative data, I think is very important for people. Um, and that's often a problem with GIS is people, GIS software is becoming easier to use, but it's easy just to click buttons and make a map and not really understand sort of data classification principles, cartography, color. I mean, this map was specifically made in black and white because that's how my book is being published. So even that I specifically chose to use from white through shades of gray to black to show increase in quantity and so forth. Um, here's some more far out stuff. This was, you mentioned earlier in the podcast about my serious game. Um, this is now where we have somebody, an avatar running around through a real world disaster situation where the person has to go on rescue missions and they read a map um, this says the, the screen is showing deliver medical supplies to the high school. It's on highway 517 turn left onto Baker drive. And so you have to read the map, run and, and make this, uh, do this sort of little mission to, um, to, uh, to, to help people out. And that's sort of a training thing. And that's, that's example of using maps for games. Um, this is now COVID we're living in the world of COVID. This is a map I made of where I live. Um, showing elderly populations, again, looking at map legends, I even say raw count of population older than 60 years old. Um, I didn't really get it. I didn't want to get too far, but there's the idea of normalization. And that's an important concept for maps about COVID, you know, comparing people 
at a normalized scale so you can make real comparisons. So using, say, Canada as an example, comparing Toronto to Kingston. Um, Kingston is where a city I like to go to. You know, there may be more overall cases of COVID in Toronto, but that could just be a fact because there's just more people live there. But if you normalize the data and compare that to another place, then you get a more meaningful um, kind of analysis of, of what's happening. Um, I've just got one or two more slides. This is the famous John Hopkins um, coronavirus dashboard. And this is what you'll hear the media often cites. I took this screenshot yesterday. We're up to 12 million cases around the world. Um, and this is the combination of a geographic map in the, in the main part of the, you know, it's a dashboard, like a car. Um, one of my videos talks about how to make much more simple versions of this basic idea, though. So you have the map. You have a data graph showing the cumulative number of cases. You have sort of these table things and so forth. Um, I think it'd be very interesting for the, the Indian Ocean project to do some kind of dashboard for the Indian Ocean on, say, historical disasters, where you could look back at different counts of, of disasters over time and changing map layers and so forth. Um, to round it out, what I'm showing you now, you asked about um, limitations, Renee, back earlier um, before I started talking about all this stuff. You know, I think the biggest limitation is going to be just capacity, right? This is a picture taken from a refugee camp, um, a different one in Rwanda, from the people that run the camp. Um, refugee camps are, are often run by national agencies, and the Rwandans are very good at doing that but they don't um, necessarily have direct access to professional GIS software. And I really like this image because they did it on their own. They took Google Earth, they figured out, in this case, they wanted to know where their dischargeable latrines are because um, it's not maybe the most sexy topic, but you know, health, and, health water, sanitation is a pretty important topic when you have a mass grouping of people. Um, and so they just use Google Earth, they put, they put the locations, they printed it out, they put it in a frame, and this paper map from Google Earth is available in an office. They don't have fancy smartphones. They don't have tablet computers. They don't have web-hosted clouding solutions. They don't have artificial intelligence. You know, I'm just using tech buzzwords. You know, um, and they probably could benefit from that stuff, but just they use their capacities of what they had. And it's a limitation, yes, but on the other hand, it's not. Um, I mean, they're, they're making do with what they have. Um, I like this image a lot, too. A lot of people just straight up use an old-fashioned paper map. Um, this is one I found uh, from the, it's called FEMA in the U.S., Federal Emergency Management Agency, where um, I think these are shelters. Green are open shelters. Uh, yellow, it looks like, I don't know what this acronym is, and red is, you know, closed. And they just put a push pin on the map. And for a lot of people, when you look at the context of people that work in disaster management, a lot of them sometimes are 20, 30-year veterans. They haven't grown up using computers. Um, I think things have changed a lot. In version one of my book, when I was doing research, um, there still was a lot of sort of cultural, organizational cultural like um, um, resistance to using GIS. But I think times are changing and technology in general is more pervasive. So I think you're seeing less of this kind of thing of paper maps, but it still is a reality for a lot of people. They don't have the capacity, the training. Again, back to the beginning of all this, the system, right? You have to have the computers. You have to have the data. You have to have the people. You have to have the knowledge. And sometimes those things come together in forms like this, just putting a paper map on the wall of pushpins. Um, 
even as in Katrina, people in Texas where I saw they were just writing people's phone numbers down on paper. Uh, you know, this is sometimes so think about a developing country or countries in the Indian Ocean where they've made huge progress on these things, but um, capacity is a big issue. Okay, that is it. I'm, I'm now done showing those many slides, and I hope that was useful for illustrating um, many facets of your question. I mean, of course it was. I think that you covered a lot of the other questions that we actually had for this podcast pretty thoroughly. Um, so I think I'm actually going to be passing the questioning over to Philip and Argisman right now because I think you already well, answered I, my question. I think I can ask, I can ask a related question to that, actually. Um, yeah. Does the way you deploy these terms, the, the way you de deploy the, 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 the transition from disaster, crises, catastrophe, does that change depending on where you look at the world, where you're looking? I don't think so. I think it's, I think it's useful in some sense to have, at least in the English language, to have some kind of standardized terms. Um, I'm, I guess I'm going right to a very practical versus like, you know, we could we could have a, a, a theoretical conceptual discussion about what's the difference between an emergency and a disaster. But I think it's important to use those terms. I mean, again, Indian Ocean, I keep using the 2004 tsunami. That was a catastrophe that affected a lot of different countries. And when you call something a catastrophe, that gets the world to respond. That gets the United Nations um, in my book, I have a whole chapter on um, international organizations that gets things like humanitarian open street map going that gets things like it's called UNDOC, United Nations Disaster Assessment Teams that gets UN OCHA, the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs that triggers international mechanisms that are in place, something called the Space Charter on, ma on major disasters. So, uh, you know, I mean, the way it's probably manifested might be different um, to, when you call something a catastrophe. A catastrophe in rural um, coastal India is probably going to look different on some level than in, you know, um, a low income area of the United States, sort of. But yes and no. I mean, I've seen I've never you know been directly in the front lines, but poverty is poverty. And even though the United States is a very well-developed country, there are people that live here that I've seen that are in very desperate state of affairs. And um, they're dealing with a lot of the same issues that people in Africa deal with or people in the Indian Ocean deal with. Um, even though they are different, there is that uni the universal human experience. So I think like, you know, a catastrophe versus a disaster, a disaster um, like Kerala, um, you know, I don't know when I was there asking people if they were just, they didn't want to, you know, I have to always wonder about when you do research, you know, are people, especially I have to be aware of, I'm a white person, a foreigner, when I'm in these places, are they just telling me what I want to hear versus something else? But in Kerala, they were very proud. They were, they were, you know, we were only displaced for a few days. Our local capacities took care of things. I think there, I don't remember all the details, but there was some outside thing, but they, they handled it. I mean, I visited the Kerala State Emergency Management Agency. They had a brand new facility with tons of computing capacity, young, young people. Um, I guess I'm getting older, younger people that working GIS that knew how to use it were right on top of it. So I would say that was probably more of a disaster. You know, they could handle disasters are, are large in scale. They probably had to call the Indian uh, you know, national government, but they were able to pretty much handle it. They didn't necessarily call in Again, I, I may be wrong, but I don't believe they called in the UN or other bigger organizations. 
Um, things like the Syrians, uh, Syrian conflict, that's a forced displacement catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And there's millions and millions and millions of people that have been displaced. They go to uh, Jordan, another country I've worked a lot in. Jordan then inv- has invited UNHCR in to help with the situation. That is a, that's a catastrophe. An emergency um, is more local in scale. Like I said earlier, that's a car accident, a, f- a fire in a building. I mean, a, an emergency could become a disaster and so forth. I think, again, um, I think the terms are universal. I think they're useful as an organizational kind of principle so we know how to, how to respond and how to, all the thing in the cycle, how do you prepare, respond, and so forth. All right, thanks for that. Um, kind of changing gears here, um, yeah. talk about something else from, from your more recent, well, some very recent work that's come, come to light recently yeah. by you. Um, look at your YouTube channel. Uh, GIS science, um, which I actually want to encourage all of our listeners to go and check out. It's a highly valuable tool to uh, further familiarize yourself with um, GIS data collection and application. And I think it's a really useful um, learning uh, resource. Um, In those recordings, and you've mentioned it as well just in your presentation just now, you discuss um, the current coronavirus outbreak in terms of GIS data collection, um, software management uh, and interaction. Uh, between um, visual interface elements. Um, One of the videos um, zooms in on current coronavirus statistics collected in India as of late April 2020. Um, Can you, I suppose, comment on this process of data collection, um, the trends you're noticing, um, and the disaster management cycle that these Indian statistics or other coronavirus and pandemic statistics um, may comply with? How do these, I suppose, relate to GIS and the broader broader methodological um, issues at play here? Yeah, let's see. Where to break that down? That's a big question. Um, I mean, I specifically did that video. Um, you know, we're seeing now India, unfortunately, is becoming close to the top of the list of sort of most affected countries. And also, just I've been noticing on my YouTube channel, there's been a lot of visitors from India. So I really wanted to make a video that was not, even though I'm from the U.S., I really wanted to make a video that wasn't U.S.-centric. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to make a video that also used open source software because both of the, the two videos I've done so far, I want anybody in the world to be able to unlock the power of maps. So if you dig deeper into GIS software, the commercial software is amazing. I use it all the time, but it's got, it's got, a, it's got some barriers to it and so forth. Um, and so forth. In terms of data collection, I think data is out there, but it's it's still um, very uh, sort of wild west, to use an American term. It's kind of all over the place. So you have the government of India. I, mean, I haven't looked back since I made the video, but you had there that one website had an official sort of table of of coronavirus data points. And then if you drill into individual states, you may or may not find data. I don't think there's, I haven't seen any kind of universal kind of data sharing. I mean, there is, I mean, people at John Hopkins, they're really focused on collecting data. So by some sense, that's become a de facto sort of standard, but that really ties into a bigger issue of just data standardization for the whole world. I mean, it's a really lofty goal, but there are standards, but is there one central place that you can go and get definitive authoritative GIS data on anything. Um, I mean, the commercial companies, they, they publish a lot of stuff and their, their, their data is good. But again, they're a commercial company, even though 
they're very benevolent and I, I'm, you know, disclaimer, you know, I, I, I like commercial GIS companies. They do a lot of good, but you always, I mean, frankly, you have, you know, they're a company, they're, they're motivated to, uh, to, 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 to promote their brand. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, I, I mean, I do the same thing. I, I showed my book off, right. So I do the same thing, um, and so forth. But, uh, I think that's going to be an issue. Um, trends. I mean, I can only really speak on what I'm seeing in the United States. Um, you know, People, I think, are getting fatigued by coronavirus. I think we're tired of being locked up. Again, I'm just speaking from an American perspective. Um, but some of the news, you know, this I the idea of Americans and this idea we have of our freedom and our individual liberties and all that, people don't want to wear masks. They don't want to be told what to do. And um, I think you're seeing like, you're, you know, I'm just going from what I'm seeing in the news. Um, you're seeing outbreaks. I think we're having more coronavirus in the U.S. than ever. It's, it continues to just go on the rise. Now, I live in New York State. I don't live near New York City. New York City was in the news a lot a couple months ago. Um, but other states like Florida and Texas and Arizona, it's, it, the pandemic is, is really growing and growing and growing. And even within the U.S., um, there was issues about just getting data on coronavirus. Like the map that I showed earlier, um, this one. So the red dots in this map represent coronavirus cases at the zip code level. Um, for your listeners who might not be familiar with the idea of a zip code, po a postal code. So the overall shape is what's called a county. Um, I don't know in Canada what the, uh, the equivalent is. Like, so if you have like Ontario as a province or New York as a state, there must be some kind of sub level below that. Like in, in, we call it a county. Is there something like that in like Ontario or in we could call it a riding. A what? A riding. A riding? Okay. I think we also have counties and general areas, I suppose. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've been to Canada a lot, actually. I just don't remember. But so, like, so within New York State, you have, like, 56 or 57 counties. And then within those counties, you have zip codes. So zip codes are a postal space, right? So um it's hard you not get the sense of it but a zip, let's look if you look here that's like probably about five miles by 10 miles on uh, my metric conversion oh geez uh six kilometers yeah okay sorry I, I i i don't mind metric at all but so you're trying to show all the coronavirus cases at a zip code level when you need to be showing it down at the neighborhood level you need to know um, when we were talking offline, we talked about uh, with one of the podcast hosts about living in an apartment building, right? You need to know on your street block where coronavirus is, because if it if it comes to your street block, you know you want to know that because quarantines and isolation. So if you're showing it at that, you know, at least back in April they were showing it at that scale. So that was one issue. Just to show me that it's at a zip code doesn't really help me. Um, and then these other things are what are called census tracts, all those different shades of blue. That's what the U.S. government uses for tracking population characteristics. Um, again, Canada might have something similar when they, do a, when they do a census, but census blocks are not the same as zip codes, which are not the same as counties. So you have different spatial units that are, are for corona, are not showing things at spatial resolutions that are useful. So you have to make interpolations and guesses. So the whole thing's a mess. And this is just one county in one state. So standardization, um, I think that's an issue still of just a unified data sets that are reliable at scales. 
that matched to standardized uh, official data sources like the census. And there was some push on that a few months ago, and that's something to look into. So this is all, you know, back to the Indian Ocean context. I think that's going to be an issue for the bigger project. S data standardized, uh, standardized data sets for reporting data so that if you're looking at India, Bangladesh, wherever, whatever countries are involved in the project, you have some kind of standard way they're looked at. And I think Corona is a good example of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Arsman, uh, do you have questions as well? Um, I wanted to ask you something about challenges, but you have already dwelt a lot on that. Yeah. Uh, but I'm just wondering if you could tell us where do you see this field going in the future? Because it seems to be rapidly expanding, especially in the context of disasters uh, that you have so well argued and articulated. So, I mean, could, could you tell us how do you see this potentially shifting or influencing disaster management strategies in areas of the Indian Ocean world, which are already under severe threat from the climate, from climate change or environmental crisis? Yeah, I think in general, GIS, I mean, the term, the term GIS, I heard an interesting perspective. I mean, what is the shelf life of that term? Um, you know, again, you guys are hist historians and you're living in Canada. The guy who coined the term GIS was Roger Tomlinson, who was from Canada. And the term, he, you know, I think he worked for like, uh, if one of your listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like the some kind of like Natural Resources Council of Canada or something like that. And that's where the term comes from. So it's a term from the 1960s. Um, will it, is it still a relevant term? You know, you're seeing, we talked about Google Maps in the beginning. I think it's becoming, I think digital mapping in general is becoming more accessible to a wider range of people. Many people don't have a need for all the real specialized things. So I think you're going to still see broader adaptation and like um, it follows computing adaptation in general. So again, you guys are historians. Um, however, computing technology, um, I remember 10, 15, 20 years ago, a lot of historians were kind of afraid of computers. You all strike me as sort of the younger generation. You've probably grown up with smartphones and working on computers as part of just life. So it's probably not as much of a stretch for you to, to think about things spatially. Um, I think resources like YouTube, all the open source learning, I think is making understanding GIS more accessible. Um, I think you're going to be seeing more just small screens on phones, tablets. That's a trend that's been going on for a long time um, in general. And then for the Indian Ocean world, I think it's all about capacity. Um, it's just getting more like what I, I, I talked about Kerala a lot because that's just what I know. Um, the Kerala State Emergency Management Agency, they were a really good representative, well-funded state. Um, one of our partners on the project is from the Valor Institute of Technology in Tamil Nadu State. They, um, they have the Center for Disaster Management and Mitigation. Um, I actually was, they're doing a conference right now. Um, I think just more capacity, getting more more computers, more training, more awareness, just people watching or, you know, we, I still feel like I'm just the advocate for GIS for disaster management. Um, I'm finding the more I go further in my career, I'm less like detail oriented on research being more just advocate, like use maps for disasters. And if that's all I can leave you with, I've done my job. Like I don't have to necessarily go into statistical significance of hotspots, you know, I know tech stuff and that stuff's there. But I feel like my purpose now, I have tenure, I'm secure in my career, is just to, to cast the broader net. Maybe I'm thinking about my own legacy, who knows what, but I mean, I'm, uh -huh. relative, I'm not that old yet, but like, you know, 
um, I found that with other professors as they go on in their career and so forth, guiding students along who do more of the detail stuff. So Indian Ocean, I think, you know, I, I don't remember this is a very kind of complicated project team. I think outreach that can be done. I think if we get postdocs, and um, I know with my partners in University of Bonn with Julia Verne, we're, we're bringing a, a PhD student online. Outreach is going to be really important. She's from India, but she's going to come to the U.S., come to Germany. She's got to go back to India, do presentations on her data, on her tools, on her methods, doing training. Because um, I do a lot of work internationally, I think it's so important to give back to the people who give to you, to try to not just take and not give anything back, um, especially, um, you know, historical data in India or wherever. I mean, acquiring data, if you scan paper or maps in, if you find them, giving that data back and so forth. Um, you know, I think that's I think that's going to be really the key is um, for the Indian Ocean specifically. Great. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Professor Tomaszewski, um, for presenting to us today. Uh, it's been a real honor, I mean, learning from you. The IOWC has actually relied significantly on GIS for our data management um, and as a means of effectively communicating with other members of our international partnership. So um, it's been extremely interesting and illuminating um, to understand that aspect of our center's research, I think. And so thank you for going into that. And thank you to Philip and to Archisman for their questions. Uh, thank you to our listeners for downloading. And uh, once again, my name is Renee Manderville, and you've been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.